0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Well, it is good to be home from Uganda where I was last week. And if you missed Robert's message on Joshua chapter 2, I highly encourage you to download it or find a CD in the resource room. It was fantastic. This morning we're back in Romans chapter 5. So if you have a Bible open to Romans chapter 5 and we are gonna zero in on verse 5. We've been going rather slow through these first five verses of Romans chapter 5 and I'm channeling my inner Martin Lloyd-Jones who took 366 sermons to get through Romans. We won't go, or you guys are like, Scared, I saw some fear in your eyes. But verse 5, I don't want us to breeze past because there is some truth in verse 5 that I want us to dwell on, and I think it is particularly important for a church like us. We are, I think, a church that loves to exalt and exult and glory in the objective, never changing, true, no matter how we're feeling, truth of the gospel. We live in an age that is dominated by the feels, right? We are feeling people. I'm a feeling person. Sometimes I am shocked at how, at how transient my emotions can be, how I can be in a good mood one day and down in the depths the next. We are people that are often dominated by our subjective feelings. And the truth of the gospel, is true regardless of how we feel. But today, as we look at verse 5, I think there is a nugget, a treasure trove of truth for us in this verse that if we will see it and revel in it, we will see that although we are not to be dominated by our feelings, but feelings, in fact, the ability, subjective sense and knowledge and experience of knowing that we as God's people are loved by him is an absolutely critical part of the Christian life. So the objective truth of the gospel should inform the subjective feelings that so often dominate our hearts. Well, let me read uh, Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 5, and we're going to settle down on verse 5 in particular. And before I do that, let me just say that uh, Pastor Raphael in Uganda and the church there are doing wonderfully. Uh, they have built a new tent building on the new land that we helped to purchase for them, and a pavilion, and a little house, and functioning bathrooms. And the church really has almost doubled in size since I was there last year. He sends his greetings, the Lord is really doing great work there, and Lord willing we'll be able to get Pastor Raphael here to the United States maybe sometime next year to greet you in person. You can go to our Facebook page and there's a little short video of Pastor Raphael greeting, greeting us and thanking us for our investment and our partnership with them, but um, I'm so thankful for, um, for, for our partnership with King Jesus Church in Uganda. And um, I, I always come back from these places a little bit juiced up. Um, the worship team um, is, it, it, it is a cardiovascular workout. And it's like um, like Motown um, choreography set to wonderful praise music. And, um, and so <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm still feeling a little bit of that. Uh, well, let's, let's read Romans 5 verses 1 through 5 and, uh, and settle in on verse 5. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope, verse 5, does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this this text. Lord, uh, this morning, I, I pray above all else that you would help us understand the enormity of your love for your people. To know that we are loved by the Creator God of all the universe, who is holy and majestic and sovereign and good, To actually know that cures a thousand spiritual diseases. So, Lord, would your children be refreshed in and renewed in your love this morning? And would my friends that are gathered here this morning that do not know you, they've never tasted your saving love, by your mercy, would you cause them to pass from death to life? Would you give them the gift of faith so that they can turn from trusting in themselves and be made right with you? And may you pour your love out into their hearts and make Jesus so irresistibly beautiful that they have no other choice but to bow their knee and their heart and their mind towards him. Do this all, I pray, Lord, for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. Oh, that we would experience this morning the love of God through your word as your Holy Spirit brings it to light for us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, our our task this morning, I think is just to work through verse five. And so I wanna read verse five again, and then we're just gonna peel back the elements of verse five. Paul says that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I, I think the point that Paul is trying to make here in the first five verses is that the doctrine that he has been outlining for us in the first four chapters of Romans, that we are justified, we are made right with God, not by our works, but by what Jesus has done on the cross, by Jesus's perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. By that work, we are made right with God. And even our ability to trust in that work is even a gift. It's a miracle. It's God taking our dead hearts and making them alive and giving us the gift of faith and giving us new birth, giving us regeneration, causing us to be born again, whereby now we are enabled. We are freed. Previously, we were enslaved. We are now freed to see and trust in Jesus and not ourselves. And that's the great doctrine of justification by I think that's the main point of what Paul has been saying in Romans 1 through 4. And as a result of that, now in Romans 5, he makes a transition to because of that great truth, these are the things that should be true in the life of a believer. And he says that we then have peace with God. Imagine that, that God, who we were born naturally enemies of, we now have peace with God through Jesus. And not only do we have peace with God, but we can endure suffering. And in fact, in God's strange, beautiful paradox, he uses suffering as his servant to actually increase our hope. And the great theme of romans one of Romans five one through five is this idea of hope that the Christian life was never meant to be lived merely for the here and now, just these eighty or ninety years. But the Christian life is always forward leaning it 's future oriented a, a theological word i 'm just going to lay it on you because I want you to grow in theological words. The word is The eschatological posture of the Christian life, eschatology, it means the study of the future or the end things, which is actually the beginning, because the end is actually the beginning of eternity. And so the Christian life is always eschatological. It's always pointing towards the future, which is where our hope lies. Remember, because he said that we hope in glory. And in fact, we are not just going towards a time when we will be glorified. But we read ahead in Romans 8, and it says that we already are glorified. So the Christian life is one where we are leaning into this reality of who God has already determined that we will be in Christ. It's fixed, it's certain, and it's sure. And he wants us to not be disappointed in that, you know? That's the point of verse 5. Every little child knows this, that, you know, you're asking dad to do something. And sometimes dad is not good on his word. You know, will he come home and bring that thing? Will he play catch with me today? Will he... Take me fishing, will he do this? And Paul is wanting us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to realize that the hope that we put in God will not put us to shame. In fact, that's the first thing that I want us to see is that hope... Does not put us to shame. The first part of verse 5. Paul's point is that you can bank on this hope. No matter what you endure in this life, regardless of the suffering, regardless of what you're facing, you can put all of your weight on this good news. God will not disappoint. And remember that that hope is future-oriented, so it rises above the temporary circumstances that all of us will face hope does not put us to shame. And now for the rest of verse 5, he unpacks why. Why? He says it in the next portion of the verse, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. What, What a phrase. The reason why we will not be disappointed on that day, the reason why hope will not put us to shame is because, not just because God has done these things through Jesus on the cross to redeem us and reconcile us and to make us holy so that we can be with him forever, but also because in addition to the objective reality of what God has done through his son on the cross, he has subjectively poured his love into our hearts. So let's pause just a moment and think deeply about what God's love is biblically and just a few aspects of it scripturally. The first thing that I want to say about God's love as we think about it is that God's saving love is unconditional. God's saving love is unconditional. We see this truth all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, we read God speaking through Moses to Israel. and He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Verses 6, 7, and 8, he says, speaking to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why did he choose Him? God answers in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because, this is such a great sentence, verse 8, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." So what is Moses saying there? What is God saying through Moses to Israel? He's saying that I loved you, not because I was looking at all the peoples of the earth and Israel seemed like to be the best candidates to represent my glory to the nations. No, the exact opposite. He says that you were the fewest. In fact, you had the least to offer. But I love you simply because I love you. Without you meeting any prior conditions, I love you. So God saved Israel from Egypt, not because they were good, not because they earned it, not because they brought faith to the table, but simply because he loved them. And we see God's dealing with Israel as being a kind of picture of how God works salvation in the lives of individual believers, even in the new covenant, in the new Testament. Listen to Titus chapter three, verses four through seven. The apostle Paul speaking here, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Notice what he says there. What what is the grounding of God's love? It's not conditioned on anything in us or works done by us, but it's according to his mercy. He writes to Paul or to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of His own purpose of gra- and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, hopefully, if you've been hanging around Crosspoint for a while, you know that we believe this. In fact, we are staking everything on this: that God loves us not because we were first good, but simply because He loves us. This is the very heart of the gospel. If you believe anything else, you lose the gospel that God somehow would be pleased with us, maybe because we were born into a Christian family or we, we grew up in a church or our parents were involved in this or that. No, none of those things commend a person to God, but the reason God loves anybody, whether it's Israel or any individual believer in the New Testament, is not because they started out in an advantageous position, but he loves simply because he loves his grace, his love, it's unconditional, it's free. It's not based on anything in the creature. If it were, how good would good enough be to actually merit God's love? Imagine, imagine the despair of any other way of earning God's love. When is something in me enough to merit God's love? And that's not the gospel. And what Paul is saying is it's that type of unconditional saving, choosing, predestining before time, electing love that he pours into the hearts of his people. And why is seeing that so important? Because if you realize that God loves you starting out not because of anything in you, you realize that God will not stop loving you because of anything in you. And so we've got, to, we've got to etch that in our hearts, we've got to stand on, we've got to pour that foundation that God's saving love is unconditional. But God's, to follow this logic here, and I believe it's biblical, God's sanctifying love, in other words, his fatherly disposition towards those who are already his, is conditional. So after salvation, after God's electing sovereign, free, unconditional grace in our lives to make us new, then our life in him, our sanctification, God's sanctifying love is based upon us responding to his love. And here's the point, we will experience to varying degrees even after we are Christians, God's fatherly love for us, depending on whether or not we are responding to Him. It means that, what I'm saying here, is that the Christian life, our obedience to Him, actually matters. And we need, to, we need to understand that especially people like us that believe in free grace and God's unconditional love and we can get so wrapped up in the power of God's sovereign grace that we stop there and then don't continue on into the obedience that the gospel calls for in us. And this is what Let me just show it to you in Scripture that God's sanctifying love is is conditioned. This does not mean that you can lose God's love or that a Christian can lose their salvation in any way, but it means that the experience that we have in our life of God's love is dependent on us abiding and striving towards him to greater degrees. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you abide in my love. Man, we could just, we could spend weeks just thinking about what it means to abide in my love. I mean, there's a thousand things. I'm just thinking, I just connected with other Christians. God has given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us means of grace. He's given us so many things to abide. What does it mean to abide in my love? Well, Well, we'll work that out in more detail at another time, but abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the fact that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, telling them to abide in his love, I think means that there is a possibility to not abide in his love. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that you have somehow fallen from grace, but there is There is this sense in which we are exhorted after we're Christians to abide in his love. Listen to what Jude writes in Jude, right before the end of the Bible in Revelation, Jude verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Do you see this duality here that God is sovereign? We read in 1 Peter that our salvation is so certain and sure that it's kept in heaven for us. God loves us with with that unending, never breaking, always and forever kind of love. But the way he, he keeps us in that Never breaking love is to enable us to do things whereby we keep ourselves in the love of God. And woe unto us if we are people who see the gospel and it would produce anything in us other than striving for more experience of the love of God. My fear is, let me just say it, my fear for my own heart and our hearts is that we become people that are lazy in our sanctification because we believe so strongly in the free grace of the gospel. Does that make sense? And so may God's unconditional saving love motivate us to pursue God's conditional sanctifying love. And how how does that happen? Well, I think seeing the distinction between these two things is, is really important because I think that understanding. God's unconditional love. In other words, he loved you not because of anything in you. He loved you because he loved you. He loved you because he loved you. Understanding that, renewing your heart afresh in that daily is the foundation for cultivating his conditional love. And how does he do that? He says, Paul says here that God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's been poured into our hearts. This this word that we get the English word poured from, from the original language Greek that the New Testament was written in could be more elaborately defined as to cause somebody, listen to this, to cause someone to experience something in an abundant or full manner. In fact, the King James Version uh, translates that word poured as shed abroad. I love that that God's love would be would be poured out shed abroad into our lives that we would be doused drenched standing under a waterfall of God's love and that we would actually experience it that God's love would actually produce in us a desire to want to obey him more and that we would know that we would know that God loves us and that hope will not put us to shame. And how does God pour his love into our hearts? The last phrase there of this sentence, verse five, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now this is the first time so far in the letter of Romans that the Holy Spirit has really been introduced, his work, the first few verses of Romans one, he speaks about the spirit of holiness. But here is really the first time where the Holy Spirit has is is given a sort of prominent role, and Paul will get into it much more when we get to Romans 8. But this is such a a significant phrase. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. Uh, I came to faith when I was 18 years old in a stream of Protestantism that put a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit it kind of felt like the way it was unintentionally presented was sort of like a butterfly. You know, he would just kind of float around and catch him if you can. And sometimes he was there and sometimes he wasn't. And it was very mystical and sort of esoteric. And, and I think really, even though well-meaning, it was quite unbiblical. But here Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So there's a couple things that I want us to see. First is that all true Christians are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. If you are born again, the Holy Spirit resides in you. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not Belong to Him. John 14, verses 16 and 17. We'll read this, a, a greater portion of this passage this earlier on. Jesus says, I'll read it again. And I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So... Anybody that tells you that you do not have the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, they are wrong. Now, clearly, there are varying degrees of maturity, varying levels of sanctification. That's the Christian life that we would all be growing in grace. But if you are a believer in Jesus then just biblically, theologically, it is absolutely true in your life that the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence in you. In fact, you were dead. Your heart was dead. And the way you became a believer is the Holy Spirit came and did a spiritual heart transplant. It took out your heart of stone and it took up residence in you and made you alive. It gave you a new heart and took up residence in you. (laughs) Just think about the implications of that. Like this, this is not the temple. This is not the church. The the Spirit of God lives in every believer. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. He he lives in us. He goes with us wherever we go and He He guides us into all truth. And not only that, but he's our guarantee. Listen to what Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 says. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So... The moment you believe, the moment that your heart is made new, the Holy Spirit comes in, brings that new heart, awakens you, allows you to see Jesus, and he seals you. He, he, he guarantees, he ensures that nothing will snatch you from God's hands. He guarantees that you will make it home one day. And not only does he guarantee that we will safely make it home, he he also daily guides us. John 16, verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whoever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine, and declare it to you. And so the Holy Spirit resides in a believer and He guides a believer and the way He guides a believer is through our conscience being renewed. That's why some of us are sometimes very miserable because the Holy Spirit is convicting us of our sin and He's guiding us and slowly by His grace weaning us from the world and wooing us to Christ likeness. And not only does he guarantee our salvation, not only does he guide us, but he also, and we don't have time to get into this, but it's a beautiful reality of the Holy Spirit. He gives us gifts. Every person in this room that has been born again has gifts given to them by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the body and the great mission of the church. Are you using your gifts? That's a, a rabbit trail we could go on for a long time. All Christians are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But not just that, the second thing I want us to see about this and the final thing is that the Spirit is the one, the person of the Trinity, that enables us to actually experience God's love. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to know, to subjectively experience the objective reality of the gospel. Let's take a step back and just look at the triune work of God in the redemption of his people. In eternity past, God the Father has planned for your salvation. So in Ephesians 1, And another uh, portion that says that he has predestined us for adoption before the foundations of the earth. So so God's not reacting to anything. He, He in eternity past, before any of us had done anything good or bad, Romans 9 says, God because of his free grace determined to save a great multitude of people and set his love on them, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be called, to be adopted, to be transformed into the image of Christ. So the Father has planned your salvation. The Son, in time, became a man and accomplished your salvation on the cross. And the Holy Spirit comes and applies your salvation and takes your dead heart, makes it new, awakens you, and takes up residence in your life. That's that's the triune work of God in every person in this room who is a believer. And not only does he take up residence in our life, he then has a jug of God's love that he is continually pouring out into our hearts so that we would not just objectively know the doctrinal truth, but that we would feel it and be fueled by it every day. God doesn't just want us to know the theology of our salvation. He wants us to experience the extravagant love and implications of our salvation so that we would be wooed to Him away from this world. Thomas Chalmers is one of my favorite Puritans, and he was a Scottish preacher back in the 1600s or 1700s, one of those two, maybe 1800s, in the past. And he preached one of the best sermons I think that has ever been preached, and it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In fact, um, you would do well if you went home this afternoon and Googled, not right now, get off the internet. You would do well if you Googled Thomas Chalmers, C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S, expulsive, not explosive, but the expul, expulsive, expulsive power of a new affection. And Chalmers' argument is that the way the gospel works in our lives is, and really the only way that we will ever be weaned from this world, is that the gospel is really one great grand love story where God makes Christ's work And what he has done for his people, so compelling and so lovely that it overpowers, it expels, it kicks out old affections. And the way a believer is transformed in Christ is they are so overcome with this beauty of this new affection that they are drawn to this new, more preferable affection over and against all these counterfeit affections. And the reason why I think this is so true is because our hearts are made, because we're made in the image of God who is love, our hearts are made to love and to experience love. And when the fall came in in Genesis 3, it Tangled all of our wires and our circuitry to where we cannot experience and know love. And it separated us from God who is love. And what the gospel does is it comes in and it reorders our affections and overpowers counterfeit affections and causes us to be able to not just objectively be robots that understand the truth and the theology of the gospel, but are transformed and overwhelmed and respond in love to the God who loved us and poured his affection into our hearts. That's the truth that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see. And to this end is how he prays for the Ephesians. Listen to these prayers and I end with this in Ephesians 1. He says in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, For this reason, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great mind? You see that phrase in verse 18? Paul's praying that that the Ephesians would know. And this word know means more than just to understand the facts. It means to be so enveloped and engrossed experientially in the reality of that truth, that it actually informs the way that you live. And this is what he prays in same along the same lines in Ephesians chapter three, just two chapters, starting in verse 14, he prays something very familiar. For this reason, Ephesians 3 14, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, that's what verse 5 of Romans is saying, is that God intends for the gospel to produce in us that type of experience. And we all know that the Christian life is not necessarily lived like that every day. And so the task for us is to Help one another to, even right now, pray, God, that I would experience that type of love. Knowing that my hope will not be put to shame. You know, again, I think we love, love good theology here. And I love that we love good theology. And I am not apologizing for that at all. But I think that our danger or our potential, my fear for us is that in all our knowing, we would miss knowing God's love. I think the first song that many of us learned in any sort of Sunday school or maybe around our kitchen table is Jesus Loves Me, right? me so friends if you know that you can face you can face whatever this world throws at you if you know that you can endure the end of any relationship You you can endure any bad news. You can endure any scary situation. If you know, and this is the great glory of the gospel, if you know that God loves you, what can man do to you? Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Father, all across this room, there are people, your people, that need to be reminded of your love for them. May the gospel be more than mere facts. as we face the loss of love in this life, the loss of future hopes, may the greater affection of the love of God overpower all those things. And Lord, there are people in this room who have never experienced your love I'm not asking them to commend themselves to you or to try harder because your love is an electing. It's an unconditional. It's a a love that can never be earned. And I pray that by your grace you would show them that and that they would finally let go of themselves and cling to you. And that the person that came into this room not knowing the love of God would turn from trusting in themselves turn from counterfeit loves, false affections, and put their hope in what You have done through Your Son, Jesus, on the cross to bear our sin, to rise again in victory over it. Lord, give new hearts all across this room for those that do not know Your love. And I pray it in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.